1: As the leader of a growing company, how often do you wake up and find yourself wondering how you're going to reduce the drama that comes with growing an active company? Well, to answer that question today, Daniel Marcos. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, Joe.
2: How are you? Thanks for the invitation. You know,
1: <laughs> drama, 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 drama. This is a uh, this is a topic uh, that. Everybody would like to see go away. Uh, oh, yeah. We live in a world where drama is uh, kind of front and center. So when when you're talking about drama, what what are you exactly you talking about?
2: So so let me explain first on a, on an analogy. You go to a restaurant, you sit down. There's nice music. All the waiters come on time. Your food comes on time. It's hot, perfectly. And then sometimes you go to a restaurant and you hear the waiters running all over. You hear the plates falling inside the kitchen. Your food comes cold, right? You know how much drama people are living. And whenever they go home, they have all this stress. But they usually bring that drama to their family. I've been an entrepreneur for 23 years now. And I know how much of the business drama I have brought to myself, my life, my body, my family, everything. And and you know whenever you're an entrepreneur and you have a team that you're under stress. The way you react, you react really bad. People shout to each other. There's a lot of things that go wrong. You have to redo things. You spend a lot of money. And that creates a lot of stress. And we believe scaling, typically, it's a process with a lot of drama. And you could really do it with much less drama. We've seen entrepreneurs that they just fly through scale and they really enjoy the ride. And we saw entrepreneurs that they have a lot of stress and drama going through the scale phase.
1: You know, I'm just sitting here thinking that uh, as companies grow, uh, they they kind of go into unchartered territory. Uh, they're doing projects they've never done before. They're servicing customers they've never had before. Uh, they're doing things, and and I can just imagine that the people are bumping into each other. They are getting uh, stressed and upset that uh, they don't exactly know what to do because it's not a habit, it's not a pattern, whatever it is. So, um, so what what can you know if companies are growing and they're they're having they're experiencing this sort of thing? Uh, what what exactly should companies be doing to to reduce or eliminate uh, these frustrations? So first, you need to
2: know what to do. And and here the other day I was I was interviewing a potential coach to coach me, and when we begin to start the conversation, he said, "Hey, let me ask just one question before you ask about me." And I was like, "What do you want to know?" And the guy said, "Is this your first company?" And I said, "No, it's my third. And the guy said, "Okay, great." And I was like, whoa, 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 wait, why do you ask the question? And the coach said, I don't work with entrepreneurs for the first time. They just don't know what they don't know. If you've been in the road for two or three times, you know what you don't know.
1: And that, that, that's, a, that, <laughs> that's a really good point. But let's let's say that uh, this is your first rodeo. Okay, so it's your first rodeo. It is your first time. then, you know.
2: and. You're, you're learning and doing a lot of things. What stick? Like you're throwing. Sure
1: you're learning how to fly the plane while you're flying the plane, right? While you're flying
2: the plane. And that creates a lot of stress, creates a lot of drama. You make a lot of mistakes. Especially
1: for the passengers. The, <laughs> the employees, you know, who really uh, are, are the ones that are kind of at risk. And
2: your families. You can imagine how many times I've had coaching calls with the, the spouse or the partner crying and having a lot of stress. Um, it happens all the time. Um, I've been sent to talk to the grandma because the business was done by the grandfather, then inherited to the kids, let's say, and then to the third generation. And there's so much drama on third generation. I need to go and talk with grandma to make sure I could start reducing drama. Uh, so it, I, I work, I've been a coach for 13 years, uh, and I've seen a lot of really bad drama in family business and the, so- sometimes you have to fix it there.
1: But beside being a coach, I mean, you you, uh, you you spent some time in the venture capital business like where I am, and you That's raised uh, close to $100 million, I believe, right? That's
2: correct. I, in all my business, I've raised over $100 million. Yeah. And, and, and who, by the way, should... the drama between the entrepreneur and the investors, it's really high sometimes. Indeed, I've been hired two or three times that a, a private equity or a venture capital fund is going to put some money in a company and said, hey, here's $20 million on investment. We're going to give you 20 million and 300,000 dollars more, and those 300 has the name of Daniel Marcos. If you don't get coached by him for the next two years, we don't put the money.
1: Yeah, and I Let's explain that, because let's, let's unpack that a little so, bit. Because- so, so let's
2: talk about that. So first is, you need to have mentors or people that really know what's next. You really have to have people that have been there and could coach you and guide you on what to do. And then second and most importantly, you have to implement systems and procedures that work. We've seen entrepreneurs that they're very heavily invested in building a company and they take the time to get the right core values, get the BHAG, get all the messaging right. And there's some that are just scrambling and trying to kind of catch up. Some people really put systems on how to have a communication system. Something that I've learned with Vern, my mentor, how to have a rhythm of communication how to negotiate KPIs with your team members every quarter, how to report them, have dashboards, all these kinds of things. It's, it takes a lot of time. It's painful to do. They just work at the end of the day. Uh, as an example, when, when the pandemic started in March, in my team were between Canada, the US, and Mexico, and we had an employee back then in Argentina, and everyone was really scared. I have a lot of millennials working for me, and it's, this is their first time in a rodeo in, in a crisis. And I said, first thing I'm gonna do, I put two daily hurdles. One daily hurdle, 807 a.m. Central Time and 447 PM Central Time. I was gonna go to Zoom for 15 minutes, both times a day, for them to see my face and talk to me twice a day. And today they tell me, Daniel, you can't imagine we were all in the stress of this company shutting down, the economy going 30% down. And I was talking to you, seeing you out of your eyes, seeing you smile or being worried. That reduced my stress, that reduced the drama. And I see all my friends. They some of my friends didn't spoke with their boss in two or three weeks after they went sent home to work. That creates a lot of stress and drama. Just this the size of being able to see you.
1: Yeah, let's let's talk let's talk for a couple of minutes about taking money in from the outside. Okay, you know, I mean, I have been a recipient of, of a lot of capital, and I have put in a lot of a capital. Yeah, yep. and uh I, I frequently tell entrepreneurs. Uh, Do not take venture capital uh, if you can help it. 100%. That's a last resort. Agree or disagree?
2: Agree, 100%.
1: Agree, why?
2: And indeed, I recommend that you take investors on stage, what I call stage three, not stage one and two. You have to go beyond, let's say, 12, 15 employees before you get venture capital. You have to nail your product, product market fit, and really understand if what you sell is, is really a problem, you and I talk about this before the call. Some entrepreneurs create something to fix a problem that doesn't exist, right? <laughs> and they raise all this bunch of money and then they really don't have a company. I really believe it's dangerous to raise money until you don't have to, you have not proven your product. On
1: and, the market. And proving, proving it means uh, the customers will buy it. That customers are willing to pay yeah, pay. whatever it costs for you to deliver. Okay, fair enough. you can't
2: imagine how many times I've seen entrepreneur that they're so in love with their product or service, but when I, then I ask them, "Hey, will you pay for this? No, then why <laughs> you are you so excited, right <laughs> or five people are going to pay it, not twenty five thousand yeah, right yeah, the problem with venture capital, venture capital or private equity or any uh, professional money has a timeline included, and entrepreneurs don't understand timelines like that. They say, well Sometimes you create a very innovative product and you're five years be- before the industry. You're 10 years before the market is ready. And if you raise money, you're gonna be crushed in the middle. Yeah,
1: let's, you're, so you, you, you know, you're using a little bit of jargon, so let's just unpack okay. the jargon because okay. uh, you're for the money business, I'm for the money business. I mean, we've both been in this world. Uh, professional money means uh, people that uh, invest this for a living. And That's typically correct. professional investors are investing other people's money. Correct. As opposed to their own. So Dr. Smith or business person Jones, uh, they take their own money and they just make investments. That's friends and family, typically, uh, you know, An angel
2: investor or something. Angel
1: investors, those are people that invest typically uh, between one hundred and five hundred thousand and 500,000 per person or so. And uh, but professionals. Uh, their due diligence is different, right? So I just want to make sure that we're clear that the jargon is, is not going to confuse anyone.
2: Thank you for clarifying that. And as a, why an institutional investor is different, or a professional investor, is because they raise some money and they have a commitment of certain return, and they make money depending on the return they give. But if, if they give 100% return in a year compared to 100% return in 15 years... It's completely different. They pay <laughs> based on the return per year, right? An angel investor, if, if they put an investment and take three years instead of a year, eh, they're mad, but they're okay. They were in. Well, but those.
1: also don't forget for those people are looking for a 20 to one return, 10 or 20 to one. The other, you know, as you kind of move down the chain, they're not, they're not expecting uh, 10 or 20 times. They're expecting three times, five times, seven times, uh, you know. Uh, And then as you get even a little further out, it might go to, you know, 20% a year, you know? I mean, so it just, the nature of the people changes.
2: So let me tell a quick story that I think it will explain this perfectly. Um, uh, Some years ago, uh, two entrepreneurs in Mexico came to me and said, hey, Daniel, we have this technology idea. It was a brilliant technology idea. I put the first angel investor and my, my job was to build or bring the first round of investors. So I put almost 100K, and then brought Intel Capital and um, another fund in Washington. They put like 5 million. And then they say, hey, Daniel, we'll take over, you're the angel investor. Now we're professional investors, we'll run with it. They put the first 5 million after that, and then they got round B and then round C and then round D. Then took the, inv- the company to the US. They start selling to the uh, US government, uh, to the Pentagon, everything. And we had a CEO that was Mexican. If you have a Mexican CEO, you cannot sell to the Pentagon. So we had to remove the CEO and put an American CEO. It was like a full change, right? So we started growing the company, but it took more time than what we were expecting. And we had to go like from five or six rounds. And always the last investor has the tag along and drag along and all these rights and the protection of the capital. They have to have their preferred return. And what the preferred return means is... Whenever the company sold, they get their money with their preferred return. And whatever is left goes to the rest of the investors. So when we sold the company, we sold it for over a hundred million dollars. And I was like, yes, I like, I made it right. I got this company that with no revenue and we got it to sell it for over a hundred million dollars. So when the check comes in round F got paid all their money with their preferred then round E and then D or whatever. Round B got half their money round a got zero money. I got zero money and the founders got zero money. Oh man. So, so imagine this two Mexican entrepreneurs, they grew their company to a hundred million revenue. They sell to the U S government and they go back home with zero.
1: You know, let let me, let me see if I can explain that uh, in a different way. Um, you know, first of all, preferred means that they get paid before you get paid. And if there's not to go enough to go around, they get the money. Correct. Um, but part of the problem with professional investors is that they know more about the business than the people who are receiving it. And mostly. they tend to uh, be so well capitalized, got plenty of money for attorneys, plenty of money for all the things that they need. And uh, and that's what makes these people very dangerous. I do a little bit of expert witness work from time to time. And and. Whenever there are professional investors, venture guys, hedge fund guys, they, they're the ones that are always taking advantage of these little companies. Uh, The little companies are starving for money. They, they need the money they get the money, but ultimately uh, the funds, they put these little uh, zingers in there, or, you know, you, you know, whatever, whatever different kinds of clauses. They understand the terms. They don't understand the terms. And and the, the entrepreneurs just want the money so bad that they overlook a lot of this stuff. And the attorneys their attorneys frequently will tell them, well, be careful. You know what? We need the money so bad. We got to make payroll Friday. Uh, just give us the money. <laughs> and, and then they end up sorry years later.
2: And something you said earlier that I think is really important. When they get the money, they don't understand all the clause and everything. And they put a really high valuation. You and I talk a little bit about before recording that we've seen entrepreneurs getting really high valuations. They don't understand that if they get a high valuation when they come in, they have to give a return based on that high valuation. Or higher. <laughs> so the, or, well, of that plus the percentage that the investor needs of their preferred return. So, so I, I've, I work a lot with, with, with investors. And the thing that I've been hearing recently said, hey, entrepreneur, you could put the valuation. We put the terms. So whatever valuation you believe it's right, most likely will accept it, but we put the terms. And the most important term, our money goes out first, preferred money, with a certain return. If you put a very high valuation, you're killing yourself on the way out. Yeah. entrepreneurs don't
1: get well. So listen, so, you know, the the takeaway from this this discussion really is that uh, if you're going to take money into your company, especially professional money, um, you really want to build a good company before you start taking that money in.
2: And that's why I say I, I don't recommend getting professional money until you don't have proven your model and you have a way or a proven scalable uh, uh, process for you yeah. to scale your company. Because if, if you're trying to figure out how to scale it with someone else's money and you think it's going to take you six months and it takes you three years, you lost your company.
1: So let's talk about some of these, uh, you know, because a lot of our companies are seasoned companies. They're, we deal with executives from uh, more seasoned uh, businesses, um, and a lot of these companies they have a lot of legacy processes. Uh, there's a lot of disruption and innovation that's taking place. How do you counsel companies to, you know, be ready to uh, to go to the next level or reorganize themselves, uh, and you know, keep what's great about their company, but also uh, not be afraid to ditch uh, some stuff that's not working, but, but they're attached to it because it's legacy. So, um,
2: sorry, I'm going to talk about stages. And by the way, if you're okay, I'll give you a link where people could download some slides and some graphics because what I, I, I have this model of how companies grow on stages and each stage you have a different need. As an example, when, when you're a human being, we're babies, kids, adolescent, adults. And each stage you have different needs, attention, education, everything in the company is the same. And the biggest mistakes that I see is entrepreneurs doing the right thing, but in the wrong stage. Mm. So what you're telling me now, it's a company that it's a seasoned company, 250 or more employees that are what I call them. They're already in stage four. They're dominating the industry. And their biggest issue is they get in the comfort zone. There we have good revenue. Everyone has good salaries. They buy their summer home and they go on the weekends and stuff. And you start getting complacent. You start getting in this comfort zone, and that's what kills you. And you have to become the change catalyst as the founder. Indeed, I, I, if you see an atom, I see the entrepreneur kind of around the company. The company runs without you. The day-to-day runs without you. But you're outside kind of going around and making sure you're the change catalyst and bringing innovation. The first thing you have to change is the mindset of the management team. If they don't have a growing mindset, you could bring whatever idea, trends, whatever. Not going to work.
1: Uh, do you know, know Salim that, Ishmael? You know what that reminds me of? Yep. It, it reminds me of uh, Annie Groves, who was the CEO of Intel. Yep. And no matter how big the company got, he was always paranoid that somebody was going to come and t- you know and take it away from him. And, and Only that the car survived. And that caused him to be incredibly uh, innovative all the time. He, he was never satisfied. He never was complacent. Uh, he was just driven by always doing more and better. the phrase of Bill Gates,
2: "I'm always afraid of this twenty year old kid in a garage that is going to destroy Microsoft." yeah, and they think like that all the time,
1: because Bill Gates was the twenty year old kid in a garage that that decimated IBM, you know, and everybody right. else. I mean so uh, and there is a twenty year old kid sitting in a garage looking to shoot a torpedo. And each and every one of the companies that our listeners work for right this minute, right this minute, there's somebody sitting there. Or you
2: could do your own. Indeed, in Silicon Valley, there's this thing called black operations. And Apple is the expert on that. And they call it the pirates of Apple. Apple always has one or two teams outside of Apple, paid by Apple, for them to do really, really disruptive innovation. And if it doesn't work, they just kill it. But if it works, then they bring it to the mothership and they create a product. What happens with the iPhone? The employees of Apple learned that there was an iPhone gonna be released the next day. They knew the day before. Like it took them, I don't know, three, five years, whatever, to develop the iPhone. A lot of employees never heard of it until the day before it was released. You know, a lot of these
1: these, uh, larger companies, uh, when I raised a bunch of money years ago and and I built the uh, stock quotes by fax business that I had, uh, we got I thought strategic. it was brilliant by the way. What's that?
2: It's brilliant business, by the
1: way. Uh, <laughs> really ahead of your time. Oh, we, we were way ahead of our time, though we, yeah. we were way, way ahead. But we got a company to give us money because it was a strategic investment for them. And, and that was really helpful. But now strategic investment has been common. Like when I did it, it was like unheard of. No one, I, I just happened to, to work it out. but uh, but now it's like Microsoft has a, an incubator and they deliberately look for little companies to put money in. And one of the things that middle-sized companies should do, they may not be able to afford their own incubator, but they certainly should align themselves uh, with you know, industries where these new ideas are coming from so that they don't get blindsided. Uh, and that's just, that's Intel, you know, for me coming from the venture capital business, you spent years in the venture capital business around those people. Uh, they have their finger on the new ideas. And, and, Even middle-sized companies need to have a growth strategy of of acquisition, and they need to be open to investing in these kinds of companies and supporting them.
2: So I I give a lot of lectures all over the world and give a lot of lectures to incubators and all these programs in universities and everything, and they have amazing ideas. They have just no idea how to execute. And then I give presentations to bigger corporations, and they have all this money and execution muscle, and they don't have the ideas. And all that, guys. You just have to
1: get together. Well, but I mean, I mean, I mean. Listen, the way the way that the ecosystem works: little companies innovate, big companies operate, yeah. and that's why it works. Little companies come up with an idea, they get it started, they kind of get the momentum started, but they can't grow it any further. They sell it, they get rich. The big company takes it, and then they go to the next level, whatever the next level is going to be.
2: But yes, but that works very well in a developed market like the U.S. That is not the standard around the world. I, I could tell you that. I, uh, I, like November 2019, uh, I went to India, Sri Lanka, and Bangladesh to give 20 lectures around this. And believe me, they don't have their act together on that. Is that like, you, you discount how easy it is or how structured it is in the U.S. because it's, it's, it's done for so many years and so well. Well,
1: you know, uh, just because it's organized in the U.S., it's not easy. And it's I, I agree. Still, it's not easy. no matter how structured it is, it still is not, it's not easy. Uh, it's not easy to tap into it. You have to be in these networks. Uh, most people are not inside the network. I mean, you're either on the inside or you're on the outside and almost everybody's on the outside. So, but the
2: model still works and you have all the pieces of the puzzle together. And the U S is the biggest economy in the world with the most sophisticated capital markets in the world.
1: And that's why it works. We, we do have the most sophisticated capital markets, but I'll tell you that except for the people who are in the business of the capital markets, very few people outside understand how it works.
2: I think you have a really good point. I agree with you there, percent
1: <laughs> So listen, so let's go back to our original Let's point, go to the drama, is yes. how, The drama, because how, how, so this, was, this was great. Listen, we kind of sidewinded into some other stuff and actually I, I love the stuff we were talking about, but how does a company reduce drama around creating new processes, figuring out new things, trying to do new stuff, going new places, whatever.
2: So I become a big reader. You see all this. And by the way, they're, they're, they're real. They're not. Um, a lot of people said, hey, that, I love your picture of the books. Um, I become a really avid reader whenever I realize that every problem or opportunity I have in my business, someone already had that problem or challenge, figure out a way to do it and wrote a book about it. So in business, we read this book, go to conference, hire, consults, everything, and we implement all these systems and procedures. But I go to companies and I say, okay, show me your systems. And they show me their accounting system, their production system, their customer support system. And I was like, show me your CEO system. I said, what do you mean? What what system? Your CEO system. Oh, oh, gotcha. And people said like, what do you mean? And I was like, what tools and systems do you use to be a better leader? And they look at me and it's like, uh, well, but I have a board, and I have whatever, and everyone tells me a different story. No one has a set of tools that works for you to be a better CEO. And I really believe that creates a lot of drama. And by the way, have I you, get so tired.
1: So let me. So have you created that that I, toolkit?
2: I I have a lot of that. Uh, I'm I'm publishing a book uh, over the summer, and I'll I'll share a little bit with it. But let me let me walk you through this. I go to a company and they having all this drama and they say, Hey, I want to hire you for you to fix my team. And I said, sorry, but what is happening below, it's a reflection of what's happening on top. (laughs) You have a small disalignment on the top. It trickles really, really big on the bottom. Yeah. And as leaders, we said, Hey, go and fix that big problem. And I was like, but that problem was created here. Let me do a
1: small tweak up here. (laughs) It's going to get fixed. So what do you think? Is that uh is that a function of arrogance or, or lack of self awareness? I mean, I mean, for a person that thinks everybody else around him needs to be fixed uh, when really it's the person who needs uh, some repair. I mean, wh- what what is that about?
2: Um, and this is, I think, starts with a human condition. For you to get to build a company as big as that, sometimes you have to be quite tough. You have to get a lot of confidence or have a lot of confidence in yourself. And you have to have all these traits that make you that strong to be able to grow a company. And sometimes when you're up there, you, start, you stop looking into other things and stop hearing people. And that creates a lot of issues. And What, that's what why, about this?
1: You know, so let's say that uh, 25 years ago, this person set up a new company. They, uh, they're, they're tough. They're a good business person. And now 25 years later, the world's gotten much softer. The people are much nicer. There's all different kinds of people that are involved in the workplace that weren't involved before. And there's a lot of rules and laws that you have to be nicer. Uh, you know, how, do, how does that tough personality work in this new soft world that we live in?
2: Some of them have been able to adapt and learn and adjust. And some just can't. And by the way, it, it, it's, it's part of human nature. And, and we always talk about this drama thing, and everything's created because we're people. We human beings are not perfect. We have all these challenges. We have all these learnings. We have all these things that create who we are, that some of them are great and some of them create problems. So we're on the people business. I really believe most of the problems, 99% of the problems of companies, are created by human beings.
1: Yeah. It, and a lot it, of that is. It's always about people.
2: And by the way, I, I've been coaching entrepreneurs for many, many years I'm talking about stages back stage three, the most important thing of stage three is that you are able to let go of your ego and really build a company with leaders that are better than you. And this is a problem that I see a lot of companies, whatever the CEO is really strong at becomes the weakness of the company after stage three. As an example, Hey, I'm really good in sales, right? I'm driving all the sales of my company. Whenever I get to stage three, I have 50 employees or whatever. I am the head of sales and I'm also the CEO. I don't have time to do both things well. And I do really bad in sales and then sales suffer. But then I say, okay, hire someone. But I, I'm never going to f- hand or find anyone as good as me in sales because I'm better than them. So I never hire someone good and that becomes my weakness.
1: And how, and how does that how does that breed drama
2: <laughs> everywhere? <laughs> like you can't imagine. Like everyone knows, except you in your company. Um, <laughs> before I start working at a company, I always tell the CEO, "Do you mind that I interview three or four employees because I want to hear the other side of the story?" And they were like, "Yeah, of course, do it." And what I hear it's it's just like sad. One of the things that I hear the most. Please get my boss off my back. They already gave me the priorities. I have my KPIs. I have my dashboards. I know what I have to do. I know more than my boss in my department. And they still don't allow me to do my job. They're all the time, what are you doing? Explain me this. Why don't you do this? Do what I want. Like, why do you hire me, pay me $250,000? I have whatever degrees. I'm an expert on this. And then you want me to do whatever you want. Like, allow me to at least give input, right?
1: No. Like yeah. how you, because I want you to do exactly this. You know, we were talking about professional money, but there's also professional managers and <laughs> entrepreneurs. Yes. You know, a lot of, a lot of smaller companies, middle, I'm not even mean small, but like middle-sized companies. Uh, they're started by uh, entrepreneurial people somewhere along the way. Uh, they grow to some level and and that culture kind of sticks there. And then over time they start getting professional managers and, you know, they, they want to do things different than the entrepreneurial culture did it. And, and I, I kind of I, I could see how these two uh, situations bump into each other.
2: So I, I've been a member of EO for 21 years, and I've been a member of YPO for the last three. And one of the things that I've learned and appreciate the most about YPO is that professional managers in EO we're all entrepreneurs. You see very little of that in YPO. You have a mix of whatever they call family business, hired guns, and entrepreneurs, and you get a lot of more uh difference of management styles and you get a lot of professional managers there that I've learned so much from them because they've been running professional business professionally for so many years and they're an expert on, on running companies.
1: Yeah. Well listen so here here's so here's a couple of takeaways. Number one, uh you know I'm always looking for the inside track, which is the best, smartest, and fastest ways to get something done. And and the whole concept of drama seems to you know come from uh, you know, some place uh, probably near the top uh, that creates this level of frustration. And, and frequently that person thinks that it's everybody else except for him or herself. And we a little tweak it's very
2: lonely at the top.
1: top. Yeah. and it's a little Always very lonely at the top. top. Yeah, I think so, too. Always near the top. Uh, but a little tweak near the top is going to make, uh, you know, a pretty big difference. So uh, I, I would I would tell companies that uh, if you're having these kinds of problems, uh, look in the mirror. Because the executives probably uh, are causing more of these problems than than otherwise. Agree? Uh,
2: There's a hundred percent, hundred hundred. Indeed, the first book that kind of gave me a sense of what it was to be a CEO or a CEO system was Scaling Up by Vernon Harnish. And I, I, when I when I got that book, he was just like, "What? You have to do all of this." Like, and and then I began implementing and changed my life. But going to the person, uh, there's a book by the Avenger Group called Leadership and Self Deception. Have you read it? No. I've read it like eight times, probably, or nine times in my life. Every time I have a problem with someone, I read the book. And it helps me think and analyze my relationship with that person. And it always comes back.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Always. It's Always, the lucky. the emperor uh, is never wearing any clothes, but somebody doesn't want to tell him, and that's just kind of you know what the bottom line is. So, you know, I just want to give a shout out to uh, to Vern Harnish, who uh, is your business partner in the Growth Institute. Uh, Vern is um, he's legendary in the venture business, not not as a venture capitalist himself, but it's a growth expert. And for you to be partners with him uh, is, is quite extraordinary. Uh, you know, Vern is somebody that I I know and uh, I consider him a, a friend. Uh, And it's, uh, it's wonderful for you to come on and, um, you know, for him to have trust in you, you must be somebody special. I'll tell you what. So uh, that's why I wanted you to share your insights because, uh, you know, your, your association uh, really is valuable. So um, listen, Daniel, thank you very much for coming on the show and for sharing your insights. Uh, I think this was, uh, we'd probably go on a long time and talk about a whole bunch more stuff, but we'd be a couple of hours it, with a beer in the hand. <laughs> kind of over over a beer would probably be fun. So, uh, and and one of these days that will happen. So, I'm sure. Thank you, Joel, very, thank much. you very much. I, I appreciate you sharing with us.
2: Same to you. Thanks for your time.
1: You've been listening
0: to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com.
1: How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Audivita Studios. Profit from the inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audivita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A dot Produced
0: by Audivita Studios.